This podcast, like many episodes of Getting Better Acquainted, was recorded a couple of years ago. doesn't really make very much difference to the conversation that we're having, apart from you should imagine that both me and my guest are two years older now and are in probably very different circumstances. immediately found myself caught up, not just in the colours and the lights and the flashing, but in a narrative that I invented in my head. And you hear this very commonly from other other gamers, yeah. particularly those of us that were there in the, the original 8-bit era, you know, when it was very simple, very restricted gameplay, very restricted graphics, very restricted visuals. Your brain was forced to do so much work that you invented worlds for yourself. Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better. Please make me better. I want to get better, better, better acquainted with you. Today we're getting better acquainted with Richard. Hello, Richard. Hi, Dave. The first question that I ask everybody is, how do you know me? You're a member of a writing group that my partner is a member of, and uh, first met you when uh, you guys all hired a house together on the, on the beach, which was lovely, and we came down and said hello. It's always interesting to meet someone's partner. When you've not met them before, you know, and I didn't actually, knew, I don't think I knew knew really anything very much about you. I was very pleased. I think everybody was very pleased. The entire, you, you charmed the entire writing group, I think. What was great fun about that is Emily had given me pen portraits of everybody, essentially. And then you get a chance to see whether Emily's interpretation of character is the same as your own interpretation uh, of character. Yeah, of course. And it's almost always totally different. You're almost always the, the, the faces and characters you have in your head almost always turn out to be totally different to the people that, that you actually meet, which I, I love that process of discovery. Yeah, you got kind of get a mental image, don't you, of like hair colour and <laughs> yeah. eye colour and all sorts of things that aren't necessarily there at all yeah. when you meet someone. And the other question that I ask everyone is, what do you do now? Right, um, I, I, I've got a, a, a whole range of things, but there's a there's a big difference in that question between what I feel I do and what I actually do to pay the bills and I, I think I'm sure we, you hear that a lot these days the, the occupation that's on your passport isn't necessarily the occupation that's in your heart Yeah. and I, I, mean, I earn my money through running a, a consultancy that advises big retailers on how to do what they do and we've got a particular angle which is that we're all about the way that you treat staff and the impact that that has on the customer experience it's our kind of shtick is that uh, the better you look after your people the more likely it is that they will want to represent that in your business and represent that in customer experiences and it's a nice way of reconciling something which is extraordinarily capitalist with an outcome that I can be proud of which is that if we do it right it means that big companies end up treating their staff better yeah and uh, it all came from an observation with KFC years ago where to be to be frank working in a KFC is pretty shitty it's not an easy place to, to exist. But I came out of my experience with that business with a massive respect, not just for the people who work there, but for the people who provide the employment opportunities for those those guys. Because there was a real obvious respect, which was KFC saying, look, people come from their, their home countries and come and work in our kind of business because it's accessible, because there's always a demand for employment. Single mums, we employ a lot of single mums because the shifts work around, around kids, around school and childminders and things. And it was very clear that they understood that these people were working in their business and giving the best they possibly could yeah. um, because it was an opportunity to do something for themselves. And, and KFC were very aware of a lot of these people that, that we look after could actually probably do just about as well financially by not working, but they choose instead to commit themselves to coming and doing 
hard shifts yeah, in a boring environment. And it was really good to see that employer relationship actually in action where and the thing that we did for them is we, we taught all their managers how to say thank you properly. That was the bit of work we did. And there's a commercial emphasis behind that. If you get that right, then your staff are happier, they stay longer, lowers your costs in terms of recruitment and training, all that kind of thing. We, we saved them about five million quid in the end, getting people to stay within the business longer. But at, the, at its heart, it was a big employer saying, I want to make what we do better for the people that do it within our business. So anyway, that's 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 what uh, what came from that. I specialise in retail. Wrote a book on it. I've always wondered that. I mean, I've always thought, well, why don't businesses think of their staff more? You know, that I never really understand this the division that that I guess is represented by the trade union movement yeah. in that trade unions are always pushing for better circumstances for its staff and businesses in kind of the caricaturish view of it yeah. uh, are always sort of going for the bottom line against the staff and I've, I've never understood why why a happy staff doesn't equal I mean it does it, yeah. I know from having worked in yeah. in lots of places in different places that when you're happy when you're all happy you work better you're happier your customers have a better experience I think part of it is that we have an adversarial attitude and approach to employment that that's long been the way you know since the barons and the serfs that there is this 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 real disconnect between I own the business and I own or I'm the the, the senior management of a business and there's a disconnect between that and the people who come and work for, for for those businesses if you compare places like Germany for example which worked very very hard post-war to create a society that was about minimizing the opportunities for, for adversarial relationships mm. so their employees are on the board yeah there are oversight committees that are made up of all members and levels of, of responsibility and, 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 and class within a business and they you know they have a, an industry which is stronger than ours they have some great retail businesses, which is my area of in- interest, where managers own shares in the equity in their store, individual stores, for example. And, and it changes that relationship. It becomes a relationship based on fairness. But then things have changed a lot in the last 20 years in the UK. It's a really simple thing in retail. I don't know whether it applies elsewhere. In the 80s, you could run a retail business successfully by being an arse of a manager, by being a horrid bully and being disrespectful and disregardful of, of people's needs because there was so much unemployment that if the person that you were bullying and treating badly didn't like it, there was always somebody to fill that role. Mm -hmm. Thank God that changed. And what changed is that you got to a position where actually recruitment became really difficult in retail in the late 80s after the the 88 recession, where all of a sudden retailers were forced into looking after employees better because it was so hard to replace those employees when they left. And for a long, long time, in fact, up until three years ago, four years ago, pretty much every retail business had net vacancies within it. You know, they had people they needed to take on and there weren't enough people to to fill those roles. And why that's interesting is because suddenly it forces a a response, a capitalist response, which is to look after that asset better. But as I say, when you ask that question about what what I do is that they the kind of commercial side of it is to try and find a, a balance between feeding the, the consumption machine um, and feeling proud and comfortable with your the part you play within that, that mm-hmm. feeling of consumption. No, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's that's probably, in a way, what, what most of us are, are wrestling with, trying mm. to find a, a way of, of living in the world and feeling happy with with our, our experience yeah. and our behaviour. Yeah. So what's... What, what is your heart? What what is what you do from your heart point of view? Then, because you said there was a. It almost sounds soppy to say it because 
and, and this is something we might touch on later on as well, that, that time's running short for me. I, I started when I was 16, 17, maybe a bit older than that, 18. I trained with the Royal Court as an actor. Right. And uh, did it as part-time training until I was 24, so six years of it. And the group that I was with, almost all of the others went off to become professional actors. And you could see them crop up with joint leads in Frost every now and again and <laughs> uh, in the background in adverts and all sorts of things. And I was the only one who, who didn't pursue it professionally. Part of the reason for that was, is that I'd started to build uh, a family. I had my first daughter at 20 and I'd, I'd got a job that was paying very well. And it wasn't that I didn't want to not do that job. It was that I, I, I thought that I would be, I would regret it if I gave up that not just security but gave up that, that burgeoning opportunity to do well in life mm. if I gave that up and, and I always tucked away in the back of my head well, you, when you want to be an actor go and be an actor when you're ready to do that go and do it but now I'm 41 and I'm in a, a, a position where I'm, I'm kind of now looking at it as a, as a lost opportunity it's something that I could have done and could have made my way within but probably never will now and that, that's that's a, a very odd feeling. But if you were to if you ask me, what is it you feel that, that that you are? I feel I'm somebody who's able to perform. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, I I I I've, you've performed at a night that I've run, and I thought you performed very well. Thank you. Why do you feel that? Why do you feel that? I mean, you're what? You're forty. Forty-one. Forty-one. Yeah. Why do you feel that at that age you can't become an actor? Because I mean, there are roles. Uh, for all ages, yeah. you see people, you know, particularly uh, comfortable middle class people who suddenly in their forties or early fifties drop it all and go off and, and, and do drama school for a couple of years, which is great and that's lovely for for those people. But I think another part of of, of me would would be thinking would would feel too much grief for the time that was lost, for the parts that I could have played if I'd have put myself into that position twenty years earlier. Or, or more, and actually, uh, but you know, you could play Hamlet at forty-one. Yeah, for sure. But there's there's that. I think there's also that 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 camaraderie thing that comes from being part of something and seeing it through a number of decades. Mm. You know, yeah, maybe end up doing something at forty-five, fifty, and maybe do it for thirty years and have a lovely old career in it. But there's a there's a there's an aspect of of authenticity that would be missing for me, which is. You know, to a certain extent, accepting that that didn't happen. Okay. And but it's not something I find easy to to balance. It's it's a it's a tough it's a tough place to to, to have in your head, particularly as a, as a parent. And I've I've got children that run a, a wide range of ages. I've got a twenty one year old daughter, fourteen year old daughter, and ten month old son. Wow. So you're getting the the, the just, yeah all three kind of stages of life for your, yeah. for your children at the same time. And you do that thing of living vicariously through them. That, that you want them to not repeat or drop the balls that you dropped or to not repeat the same mistakes or, or, or losses of opportunity that, that you made yourself. And that's, that's tough as well because their life is their own. It's not yours to play with. But you're a parent, so you have also got to help be part of shaping where they take themselves. It's a... Yeah, for, for, for our, my generation who are kind of this generation that is is younger in so many ways than our parents yeah and it's, that happens all the time you know people say oh children grow up quicker and uh, adults are, are, are younger longer but there seems to be a dramatic change 
you know, my, my, my father's only 66, but the, the, things like the idea of play are ridiculous to him. You know, the idea of, 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 of not taking life seriously is it, because he, he, like a lot of that generation, grew up with real hardship at the beginning, kind of sees that as, as almost disrespectful to what went before. But actually, mm. my childhood, yeah, mum and dad divorced when I was eight, but my childhood was brilliant, really easy, you know. Yeah, maybe there were sometimes there were money problems, maybe you didn't get the toy you wanted, but you weren't going to have a bomb fall on your, on your head. Yeah, absolutely. You weren't going to have your parents go off to war. Yeah. You weren't going to go hungry. You know, it's a different type of, 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 of financial difficulty. And, you know, you had great schools, you had great health care, all that stuff that you don't have to pay for. It's just there and exists. So it's meant that we're, I think we're a generation that, that just have less to worry about. Even, even nuclear war, you know, at 41... I was that generation where we were fairly convinced that at some point we would be invaded by the Soviets. Yeah. At some, you know, it was a real and present. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I believe, yeah, da- danger up until no. the mid '80s, and then suddenly that ceased to be. Even, even that big threat kind of went away. Yeah. And I think it's, it's meant that we have this frivolous relationship with with, with life, and, <laughs> and therefore it's it's worse to have wasted some of that opportunity for frivolity. Okay. And, and so do you feel that you're going to have to give up frivolity now? No, not at all. I, <laughs> I, well, I, I'm a big video gamer. Um, yeah. It's really important to me, uh, to, to the point of, of, of quite militancy in, in some areas. But it, video gaming is something I share with my kids. It's a common language. And I think we're the first generation who aren't going to give up that sort of play. You know, I'll still be buying games when I'm in my 90s. Yeah. And I'll be playing with kids when I'm in my 90s. You know, and they might be in different countries or on different continents and we'll still come together to play. And that's... Well, I do think you are the first generation maybe that has a kind of shared language with, with, with the generations that come after. Like, I'm, t- mm. I'm, I'm 10 years younger than you, yeah. so I'm the next generation down from you. We, we will have so many shared reference points. Yeah. We'll be able to talk about... I mean, and we will in this conversation. Yeah. Um and the kids who are coming up now, okay, yeah, right, we're yeah, not as down yeah, with yeah, the kids yeah. as we'd like, yeah. but we know the areas that we should be down with them. Yeah. You know, we, 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 we've got a kind of key. We don't exactly, yeah. we, don't, we don't know exactly what's going on, but we've got a key to it. I mean, and, and that's, that's definitely happening more and more. Like, like people in their 40s, they yeah. dress like people in their 30s and people in their 20s. And we all, we do, you know, like you say, there's, there's there's computer games, there's music, yeah. like all of the people I listen to, like a lot of the podcasters I listen to are kind of American comedians in their forties yeah. who have now suddenly become successful. Because forties is a is an yeah. age when when sometimes people do, in pop cultural terms, become successful. Not if they want to be yeah. a not if they want to be a rock band. Like like yeah. I remember, you know, a few years ago, just having to accept I'm I'm not. I'm not going to be the rock star I wanted to be when I was 15. Even yeah. if I make it now in the music business, yeah. I'm going to be a singer, contemplative singer-songwriter. <laughs> you know, you know how the how and, the and like changes. To, to me, a minute ago, I, I hear you saying that, and I, I I see that and think, and you can have a brilliant experience being exactly that. Yeah, no, I know. I think I probably would. And, and it's it's that 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 funny old thing that I, I, I don't understand why I find it so difficult to think of myself that way with with performance and with acting and uh, I, I, I have this tendency as I'm sure a lot of people do to set up opportunities to, to, to make something like that happen and then just fritter it away I, I wrote a play called four years ago now that re- reached the final stage of something called the Verity Bargate Award. Oh, yeah, I've applied for that a few times. Yeah, I, and I got the letter to say, um, 
um, this is what we felt about your play this is what we loved about it this is the bits that we would want to work on and there was a, an, inter- an invitation at the, end, at the bottom to get involved with the literary team at the Soho Theatre but all I saw in that letter was you haven't made the shortlist yeah. and I threw it in a, in, a, in a drawer and two years later I met somebody else from that same year who'd also got the same letter and she said oh so did you get down there what, what, what did you think to people hey, did, well no I, 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 they didn't want it in the shortlist so I threw it in. and she said well, but no did you not see the invitation to get well yeah I did but all I saw was the failure yeah and actually as Rachel her experience she she had some great time developing her, her playwriting skills with, with, with these guys direct and had a relationship with the Soho Theatre as a result of it but I'd looked at it and gone well sod it that goes, goes to one side and I've had other friends since then desperately trying to help me put on rehearsed readings of that particular play and I I just I see it as it either instantly works or it doesn't. You want to, yeah. You want to, you want it to be produced on a big stage <laughs> or nothing, all yeah, or nothing. Yeah, to, to a certain extent, I think I have that kind of instinct. I'm trying to learn to temper it, but mm. I, I know what you, I know how, you, I know what you mean. Like I, 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 I write plays myself, and, yeah. and and when I've, I find it really hard to even bring myself to write a play anymore yeah. because I have, I'm, I'm like, well, I see no way of getting that produced yeah. so what's the point in even sitting down and wasting my time on that yeah. and then a few years ago I was like right I better write some more plays because that's what I that's yeah. what I grew up that's what I wanted to do when I was 15 years old and what wouldn't it be yeah. stupid if I never did that well, no, again that's the truth yeah. of it is that the reality is that if you if you want to you can get anything like that put on you can get mm-hmm. you can make exactly, it exactly no. the, the amount of terrible plays that, <laughs> exactly. that you see but where somebody's had the energy and passion and vision to see it through and and, and our stuff might be rubbish but if we want to get it produced we, we could we yeah. could make that happen without any doubt at all but there's that, that I don't know there's that, that stop if you, if you don't have to risk it if you don't have to push it if you haven't put it out there, there's no chance of it not existing anymore and this was the thing with acting for me is that I, I know in the back of my head, I might say, well, no, this is fine, you know, the kids are growing up and I'll go and do this, go and do that. In the back of my head, there was still this thing saying, but if tomorrow you want to be a professional actor, you go and be a professional actor. And that was sustaining that part of me until you get to the point where, and this is the thing about, about the age now, and what I was trying to say earlier on, is that I know now that that voice has faded to nothing. Because, yes, I could probably go and get myself a role or two and wouldn't have to panic about money very much you know and all those things give you time to establish yourself but it's just not the same it's not yeah the, the opportunity is gone to do it and do it in a way that is authentic and real and you're a part of it I don't know I mean I, I hear what you're saying and I understand why you're feeling the way that you are I'm not sure that that the opportunity ever necessarily has passed I think yeah. sometimes I think it's the way we look at it's our concept of opportunity that word in itself yeah. is almost the problem yeah. like I've been trying to to teach myself not to try and be successful but to try and make my work good Yeah, you know because I've always been reaching for success yeah. for, for, and, and actually the more I stop reaching for success more success that I'm having, yeah. but then the more more success I get, yeah. the more I go back towards like, oh no, now I'm getting a few little bits of success. Maybe I can get something really big, and yeah. then you know, then and then I've lost again. Then I have to sort of like, right. That's an interesting journey uh, and an interesting perspective on it. There are so many things in life where they say that once you stop 
grasping for that thing quite often it ends up happening to you yeah. and the typical one is you know I, I met my partner Emily four years or three years ago now I can't I have to sit and add up Christmases <laughs> <laughs> is how to work out but I'd gotten to a point where I thought you know what I'm probably never going to meet the love of my life and I'm probably never and and whereas before I've been I've been looking for that person yeah. because I was sure they existed my, my two earlier daughters I, my, I split up with my wife 13 years ago um and I was, you know, I was convinced, you know, that, that I'd find. and then I got to a point where I thought, no, actually, do you know what? I'm going to enjoy meeting people. I'm going to enjoy going out with people. I'm going to enjoy having relationships, but it's not going to happen anymore. And I knew also, I knew that I wanted more children, but I was starting to bag that up as well and say, okay, that's not going to happen for me. And of course, when all those defences get tucked away and all those strivings get tucked away, yeah. actually, it turns out that that puts you in the perfect psychological state to meet somebody not just to meet somebody but to recognise who that person could potentially be to yeah. you and that was exactly what, what, what happened with, with, with Emily and it's, it's fascinating that you say that about your own work as mm. well which is another area of passion and emotion because it does seem to free you to be able to, to just get on with it so maybe that's the lesson I need to extend elsewhere yeah um, may, maybe maybe it is I mean uh, it's, it's funny I mean because these things can happen like because I I've been with my partner for 11 years yeah. and we got together when we were kids, you know, 19, I guess. Oh, yeah. And, it's, and we, you know, we'd just gone to university, but the process for me was exactly the same. You know, that I, it seems ridiculous to say this now because I'm 30 and I'm like, yeah. I was a kid, but I'd been like, no, I'm never going to find anybody. Yeah. I should just forget about it, you know, which is ridiculous at 19. Yeah. It's probably ridiculous at whatever you would have been 38. Yeah. Yeah. But, but but once you come to that conclusion, it does kind of leave you open to, yeah, to the, the universe kind of making you look silly. <laughs> <laughs> That's it, exactly. Okay, what was the first computer game that you ever played? It's really uh, a very, very vivid memory. It was Space Invaders, uh, 1977, maybe 78, uh, Whitney Leisure Centre. Um, Dad took, it must have been 78, thinking about it. Dad took us swimming, not Whitney Leisure Centre, that's, yes, no, it was originally Whitney, or it might have been the Oasis in Abingdon, doesn't matter, one of the two. The old jail in Abingdon, the Oasis is something different. Now I'm sounding like an eight-year-old man failing to remember the war or something. You know. Uh, no, it was, it was, it was the, the 78, and it would have been either the Windrush Leisure Centre, which is in Whitney, or the old jail, which is in Abingdon, which was a great swimming pool in an old jail, which was an awesome place. And there was a Space Invaders machine, and managed to, to, to get 10p off a of dad. I think we got a chocolate bar as well after swimming. And... Uh, immediately found myself caught up not just in the colours and the lights and the flashing but in a narrative that I invented in my head and you hear this very commonly from other other gamers yeah. particularly those of us that were there in the, the original 8-bit era you know when it was very simple very restricted game uh, gameplay very restricted graphics very restricted visuals your brain was forced to do so much work that you invented worlds for yourself you know and you could you could see in this little ship that moved at the bottom in these bases Suddenly, these bases were something that you needed to, to, to protect. There was a reason to stop this this invasion happening. Even as, a, as an eight-year-old, it was obvious that you could invent 
and play a part within that space. And you know, I, I can hang out with a, a lot of gamers these days as well. A lot of my friends are gamers. It's, it's, it's something that's very common to us as, as a group. And you see that as a, as a constant. You know, even people who will claim that they're not creative, who will say, no, 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 I couldn't do any of that stuff that you're writing or, or, or before, couldn't it? But they'll still invent a, a, a world for themselves when they're playing Robotron, or they'll invent a world for themselves when they're playing Asteroids or Galactians. It's something more than what's on the screen. Um, yeah, instantly hooked. But Space Invaders was always a gateway drug. <laughs> and that took you on to uh, asteroids and galactians and and more complexity. But there was also this this extraordinary pace of development that you know a year later there'd be games that gave you so much more complexity, so much more involvement, and and that that kept going and that kept pace for well for thirty four years from that that point on. It was incredible. And, and I, going back to a point we made earlier on, we got a, an, an Atari 2600 at home that was one of the original home consoles. And that would have been uh, 1980, something like that. We'd had a Binetone Pong machine before then. So we had this Atari console, and I remember distinctly playing Space Invaders and playing, um, it might have been a, a version of Breakout with my dad. Um, one player, we only had one controller. He'd, he'd play a go, you'd play a go. And for a brief inkling, a brief moment in time, we had that shared language that I talked about earlier that I've got with my children. But if you even tell him about that memory, he'll deny it ever happened. Right, okay. Because I think he sees the frivolity in play as being just inappropriate. You know, video games are clearly this thing that, that a certain type of socially awkward person relies back on and it's not about the real world and it doesn't you know, have any value and you don't end up with anything at the end of it. We don't end up with anything at the end of a game of Scrabble, but he might justify that as, well, your vocabulary improves and it's... And, and yeah, that moment, that moment went, and I, I, I've grieved for that moment ever since, mm. you know, because there was an opportunity for us to, to have something that, that disappeared. And uh, funny enough, our relationship has grown in formality since that time, ever ever since. You know, I, I know he's proud of me, I know he loves me, and he's... he's it's a mutual feeling it's a great dad to, to have but we're in a very formal relationship now which is a curious thing to have seen to have kind of crossed over a bridge and fallen down the other side and you and obviously you're you, you don't want to have that kind of formality with your children no absolutely it? and so your youngest now do you think that he'll have the do you think that there will that you're because you know that you're kind of at the cutting edge of Gaming. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, you were born at the right moment. Where I mean, I came. To, I I'm. I don't play as many computer games as I would like, and uh, I don't play hardly at all anymore. And I was always, I was always a console back. Like I got the Spectrum yeah. ZX80, and everybody else had got just got the Mega Drive. Brilliant. Uh, no, the, the, hang on, the Master System too. They yeah. all got. Then I got the. I bought my friend's Master System too when he got his Mega Drive. So I was yeah. always getting the pass on from the cutting <laughs> edge. But you've you've been kind of. You've kept up with it, right? Mm. And my dad, uh, who is 88, he was an early adopter of the internet. Oh, right. So he kind of kept up with the internet all the yeah. way, right? But now he can't make that leap from the internet to the smartphone, right? Right? Because, I don't know, just because there's only so much you can process yeah. and he's, you yeah. know, he's an 88-year-old man. Yeah. You're, you, you're, there's quite a large kind of... There's going to be a large gap between your experience of technology and yeah. what, what um, your yeah. son's 
yeah, an experience. And there's there's no doubt that there'll be things that that he takes for granted that I'll find difficult concepts to to to, to grapple with. That yeah. I, won't. I mean, even now with with my fourteen year old, there are apps that she has on her smartphone. <laughs> That I can't quite get my head around, but and that's that's an inevitable process. But I but I think what is what is different, and this is a great thing from from the story of your dad and the internet. There's there's a great idea that those those sorts of tools, those enabling tools, have the potential to be universal across generations from now on. You know, we, again, we, and you're in the same in the same generation here. We're the first generation that's never going to be lonely unless we choose to be. Yeah, because we will always be able to communicate with friends or as friends die off as we get older we join interest groups we join forums we um, find shared interests of whatever it might be and on a forum doesn't matter whether you're 80 8 years old doesn't matter what your particular interest might be you will find a group of people who are like minded that's very true and I think that's that's a that has some minuses in that it's world shrinking and you know, some of the wonder of the, of, the, of the scale of the world disappears. But and bombardment as well, you get very yeah, bombarded yeah. by everything. But I think what, what's, what's, we're in another, we're in a position in time that is a, a position where we're lacking frontiers, but that will change again. And it might not change in our children's lifetime because, you know, we're measuring our lifespans in 100-year chunks. Yeah. This might be a thousand year chunk or a five hundred year chunk. That those frontiers that my, my my grandfather fought on the front frontiers. He was a professional soldier for thirty two years. Those people have been part of, of frontier relationships while countries and worlds were being discovered. That's that's sort of done. We've had a little nibble at the moon. We've had a little nibble at the rest of our of yeah. our universe. But we're not really in a stage for sticking people in a spaceship and sending them off to another galaxy. No, we're not. Sadly. But and we'll, we'll miss that, unfortunately. Yeah. But our at some point, our uh, uh, it's not ancestors, uh, the people who come after us. There's, there's a word for it. I can't remember it right now. Those those people will be back to to to, to a frontier. It will be the the horizons have changed. The world is now Portugal in the 14th century, and they go off and find the the West Indies or whatever it might be. That they go and go and discover. But we we've, we've missed out on that that bit. You know we. Manned, manned moon flights and things don't happen anymore. We don't fly at supersonic speeds anymore across the, the globe. We've dropped a whole bunch of cutting-edge t- technology for pragmatic, commercial, and cost-driven reasons. But that will change. We'll, we'll get back to that, yeah. pushing and pushing our, our boundaries. We may do. I mean, absolutely. It's a possibility, certainly. There was a Carl Sagan quote I heard the other day that I thought was extraordinary. He, he, he just said, we're a species that requires frontiers. Uh, and we are. We twiddle our thumbs a little bit when we get comfortable within an unquestioned boundary we, and sometimes that, that, that shows itself in terrible horrible ways where we end up with, in war and other times it's in wonder where we explore the deepest bits of the ocean we send up little little fireworks to at least explore outside of our own atmosphere but that, that's something we definitely need we need to know what's over the next hill isn't the potential I mean potentially isn't the internet a frontier in itself like isn't the it, it is but it's an inward looking frontier right it, it's a thing that 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 forces exploration within ourselves as yeah, a species absolutely. and as a relationship. It's not about it's not about forging into a place of unknown. It's just about it's the difference between exploring the plains of Africa and exploring the deep ocean. Yeah, yeah. The deep ocean's full of fascinating stuff, but we broadly know what's there. You know, we broadly know it's full of water and strange fish. That's true. I, I guess the people who are, if, if there's anybody at the moment who's at, at, in a frontier kind of position, I think it's maybe the people who are working in physics. Like yeah. the, the, yeah, the discoveries right. that they make may prove to have. I mean, if if we do 
discover that we are part of a system of parallel universes well yeah. that's a lot of frontiers yeah. how on earth we'd find a way of getting from one to another yeah. and, and at, you're, you're right looking at quantum physics and the idea of relationships between particles being not quite perhaps as we, we thought they were yeah. absolutely fascinating what, what potential there is there but it's again we're on, we're on this hiatus between discovering parallel universes or discovering new planets or discovering we're in, in a place where it's tiny little tiny little inward looking discoveries yeah you know the the, the hunt for the, the Higgs boson part was a very inward thing yeah to, to, to be involved in uh, utterly fascinating no, yeah but it's very important yeah it's not what it's not expansive it's yeah. not adventurous exactly that it's, it's not going and discovering that there are moon men living on a cheese rock in the in the sky yeah <laughs> No, absolutely. Talking about travelling between places, you've just recently come back to live in Oxford. Yeah. You lived here before, didn't you? I I, I born and bred, spent the first 30 years in Oxford, and then, mainly for work reasons, ended up moving to South London, and then latterly lived in St Albans, which is a bit to the north, but still kind of within London's orbit. For for the the 10 years, really, of, of, of that time, it felt like an exile. Right, you know, I missed home, and I love travel. I, I I love exploring the world. I love all those things. But you come home at the end, of yeah. This. And I've got a very strong sense of of it being home. And um, you know, my my daughters were still based here, and so I was backwards and forwards to Oxford all the time. But as an outsider, and having that strange experience of walking through the city centre and thinking, well, I don't remember that being there. I don't, I don't remember that that being cleaned up, or that being closed, or that being changed. And one of the things that I, I, we talked about, you know, finding somebody, finding your soulmate, and finding that that person. One of the things that I was always frightened about is I knew at some point I'd have to come home to Oxford, that I wouldn't be able to emotionally and spiritually operate outside of it, outside wow. of its orbit. I needed that 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 place in in my heart, and so I was always worried that I wouldn't meet somebody who would want to do the same thing. By wonderful kind of uh, serendipity. Emily was in a similar period of her life where she had a brilliant London experience, but was ready to think about exploring somewhere else. Yeah. This happens to be towards where where she's from, Stroud in in the Cotswolds. So there's a you know as we have the, the new baby and a chance to be closer to to a father and, and friends and and relatives in that 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 part of the world. But coming back has been possibly one of the best things I've ever done. I was worried because you think you know you can never really return to something, and I was worried that. My experience of Oxford and my memory and relationship with Oxford would be, would be different, and there'd be a, 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 a um, shattering between the two. Not, not at all. It's, it's been amazing, and we're now a year and a little bit into that, that yeah. journey, and loving it more every week. I deliberately moved to a bit of Oxford that I'd never lived in as an adult because I, I wanted to explore and see that anew with Emily, so that together we'd find new stuff. But the primary school that I went to in the early 70s is and uh, for the benefit of, of, of listeners I'm pointing now, is That's about right. uh, 10 minutes stroll that way. Right. And there's a farmer's market we go to every Saturday in my old sports hall from when I was a kid where I <laughs> broke my arm at 5. And it's it's wonderful, doesn't it? Also, but I mean, school. When you go back to the schools, especially primary schools, everything's mm-hmm. so much smaller. 
Yeah, <laughs> bizarrely. Yeah, totally bizarrely. Yeah. And I, I broke my arm at that, that school by falling off the top of a, of a piece of apparatus in the, in the sports hall and falling back onto my arm and it, it splitting. And of course, in my memory, that sports hall was, was a vast, cavernous expanse. I, I think I could probably, if I got on tiptoes, touch now the top of the bit of apparatus <laughs> that I fell from that felt like a, a fall to terminal velocity from yeah, the edge of a mountain. That's it's extraordinary. Right. That's right. That's how childhood memories go. It's interesting to me talking to people who have a real sense of home and place mm. because growing up I never stayed very anywhere very long yeah. I uh, was born in Norfolk at three I moved to North Wales and to the countryside at eight I moved to Coventry yeah. which we spoke a little bit off mic about <laughs> and uh, at 11 I moved to Cardiff which is where I had my teenage right so yeah, that's probably that's the place important. I that's probably the, that that's the place when I go back to Cardiff I have all these kind of nostalgic feelings and this is kind of like yeah. it's like going back home but but also I was an English person in Cardiff and uh, yeah. I can never be as much, you know, I, I'm never as Cardiff a person as I might have liked. And yeah. then when I was 18, I wanted to get away from the family as quick as possible. So <laughs> I went up to Lancaster in the north yeah. and then, you know, lived there for five years, six years. And then now I've been living in London for a bit. Yeah, I've got, you know, I've lived so many places. I've got, haven't got that sense of I. Yeah. identity based around place you know yeah. and that thing you were just talking about then about being a teenager and having this warm affiliation to Cardiff but knowing that you're an Englishman in a Welsh town that, that almost feels like a cruel twist mm. to, to it because I know as I walk through Oxford and, and on the one hand it's, it's, a, it's a shitty sense of, 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 of pathetic superiority you walk through going I was born here I live here this is my city therefore I'm allowed to walk down this path in whatever way I want to which of course is a nonsense mm. but it's also a nonsense that connects you in a, in a in a really tangible way and even for Emily because she has you know she is part of a house here has an address here it's her city to, to use as well that, that, again you can see her having that same sense of entitlement makes it sound, sound unpleasant but it's not at all it's, it's a sense this is our town it's ours to, to, to almost I'm trying to think of the right word it's not martial it's not own, but it, it's it's the, it's our place to, to to have a sense of how it should be operated in, and I I, I adore that. And Oxford has this really. A lot of people feel this, and you, you hear there's a lot of, for example, a lot of Americans come and live in Oxford for various reasons, and they'll tell you there's a particular feeling to it, a particular pull. And I think it's partly that if you look at a, a map of this part of England, Oxford is actually weirdly rural. It's a city, but that is then it's a good drive, it's a good distance to the next big urban area. Mm. We really are in the middle of a rural area. You don't have to go very far to, to, to be a long way away from, from shops and roads and motorways and those sorts of things. But yet we're umbilically connected in an extraordinary way to London. You know, we have these two 24-hour-a-day coach services. It's easier for me to get home from London to Oxford. It was it really quick. I mean, I, I, I sort of was thinking, oh, I'm going off on a day trip, I'm going on a road trip. And it yeah. was like, well, I could... Uh, at the time it took for me to get door-to-door -door if I hadn't have sort of stopped because I'd like to get places early. Yeah. But if I'd have gone door-to-door, -door, it would have been as quick as to commute to some parts of London. Yeah, I know, it's, it's a weird thing. And, and that thing, at, you know, at three o'clock in the morning, you can get home to Oxford when you can't get home to Croydon, you know, from the, from the centre of London. It, it, I, I find that extraordinary. But I think that's what Oxford has, is it, it has this compact smallness 
and, and rural edge to it but at the same time it's connected to one of the biggest most vibrant cities on the planet and so it has that relationship that enables it to be a very distinct thing and I I, I think that's one of the reasons why it's such a strong thing in, in, in my heart because you know, when I was a teenager we'd go out drinking in Oxford 1984 1985 that sort of time we'd have a lovely night out and then we'd hop on the coach at half past 11 and continue our night out in Victoria you know in London okay yeah and we'd come home at three o'clock in the morning or whatever it might be and you know mums and dads were none the wiser but it meant that our outlook was was already very metropolitan but we still lived in this this golden honey coloured stone academic idyll that's the other thing about Oxford isn't it the university is the thing that kind of when you say the word Oxford that's probably people think yeah. of the university before they even think of the town or, yeah. thought, or city yeah I mean what's we did, like what was it like growing up what was your relationship well, to this university that's, that's one of those great things about Oxford I, I remember at um, 19 going to to visit a, a very important mate of mine in uh, Portsmouth where he'd gone to university and his friends that I met saying things like oh I knew you'd wear glasses <laughs> Why? <laughs> well, because you're from Oxford, and even even in that, you know, that removed, they were convinced that it was full of of, of people who were academic and therefore wore, wore glasses. Because the more intelligent you are, the worse your eyesight. <laughs> yeah, I mean, exactly. These are linked causally. Yeah, but but the other thing is, Oxford is also the birthplace of the British motor industry. Lord Nuffield Morris had the first car factory in Britain here. And when I was a kid, you had 20,000 men working at the car factory up in Cowley. And I still remember, and I love having these memories, very distinct memories of being in that part of Oxford at at the time when the whistle, literally the whistle went at the factory gates, and men in cloth caps and overalls would come out on bicycles, would come out walking, not driving, ironically, uh, to go to to their, their homes and their families for tea. And So I saw a very industrial part of Oxford, at the same time as being very aware of the academic part of it, but never being involved in the academic part and that's that's a, a challenge that Oxford has is that the academic part keeps itself very separate now as a local as, as part of the town rather than the, the the gown as it's called here there's there's some caution in, in that that we owe the university a lot we owe our identity to the university absolutely no doubt about that at all but at the same time when it can be very difficult to do cultural things in Oxford because the university own and close up all of the places to do that if live music for example the fact that we've had bands like Radiohead and Supergrass and, and, and people like that and Ride come through is, is despite the fact that it's very difficult to find performance space mm-hmm. in Oxford in the city of, of culture not really if you're a local and that's changing ever so slowly but there's only three pubs with a room for example that you can perform in and none of those are quite quite right to do it you know, there, there are some serious areas like that where there's a, a lot of tension between the way the university works and the way the town works. Everywhere you walk, you'll be next to a university sports facility. And there's only one of those that the, the locals are allowed to, to access. All the rest of them are, are, are private, locked shut, used very little. But, but then the, the, the flip side to that is, because the universities own them, they don't really care about the financial side, they're not built on, so we have these beautiful green spaces. Right. So you have to, to balance the two, but there's a definite tension there. Yeah, no, I mean, I imagine it... I mean, because everywhere... Because I... I mean, I went to Lancaster, which is a campus university. So yeah. that's the university is separate from the town, and you you live in the campus in the first year. Then you go and live in the town in the second year, yeah. and suddenly you know you 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 come across that tension. Yeah. And uh, I'm sure it's even more in in Oxford because it's kind of magnified in its in its. I mean, yeah. Lancaster's not as uh, impressive a. a Building and a, as a, and a well world renowned university, so yeah. I'm, I'm sure it's more 
more intense. And, and there are, there are, I think, thirty thousand students in Oxford out of a total population of one hundred and ten thousand people. Mm. So you know, it's a huge, great proportion of the population. But then there's a lovely ebb and flow there. When the students go go home in holiday times, the city changes. Uh, some yeah. bits for bad, some bits for better. And then the students come back, and you get this vibrancy pouring in again. And it, I love that flow. We, there's a uniqueness to that that feel of of, 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 of how Oxford works. I mean, I guess Oxford's big enough as well, because I used to stay in Lancaster, I used to stay in the holidays, and everybody used to go home, and I used to love it, because it felt like a ghost town. Lancaster's so small that really the students are its industry (laughs) now, I mean, not not historically, but now, and and, and it used to be a great kind of, as a writer, it used to be great to stay on during the summer break and just, just you know, quiet, I can do what, you know, it just felt like in a kind of bubble in, a, in a, diff, a very different sort of texture to the air and to why didn't the, you to go home? oh um i didn't go home because i had well there, there there were there were two reasons really one is i wanted isolation to write i was driven very much as a writer even then and and i got a lot of work done in that that time so it was a it was an intelligent decision oh, i guess there's three reasons the other one was me and jen Got, we got together in the first year yeah. she lives in York it's much easier to go to see her in York and her to come to see me in Lancaster than yeah. to go back the other one was my family moved cities again yeah. there was no room for me in the new house yeah. so I couldn't exactly go home and my childhood and my teenage years were complicated in terms of the family dynamic and I was enjoying being away from that and just going to visit for short periods of time because the summer is a long period of time to be with your family uh, if you're finding it difficult and so yeah that's 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 an interesting thing I I, I realised a couple of years ago and realised with some sadness on the one hand but also weird pride that since I'm since I left home at 18 I've never slept a single night under my mum's roof wow and I love my mum she's brilliant we get a great relationship there's absolutely no there's no staying away involved yeah. just never have and it's partly that at one point she then moved moved houses and the new house just didn't feel although I felt very comfortable in it loved visiting and that sound effect is the scrapyard just mashing something oh, in the background okay. there. I wondered what it was um, but, but in fact if you talk about industry there's been a scrapyard there since Oxford's had motor cars wow um, it's in amongst 30 acres of, of, of nature reserve around it and the, the river but weird the scrap metal yeah. anyway yeah never slept a night under my mum's mum's roof I think there's a, a weird sense of, of, of separation you go and that's it and I talk about the formal relationship with my dad, and that formality means that I have stayed with my dad a number of times because you sort of get invited to. Ah, okay. <laughs> because you, you get, and he, he's a brilliant host, and his and his wife, brilliant host. The pair of them together are fabulous. Really make you feel welcome, and really care about everybody having a, a great time. Whereas my relationship with my mum is very easy. It's just you know, it's mum, ring her up, talk to her, you know, hang out. It's this lovely. You, know, you don't need an invitation, but yeah, I've not wanted to be in that house beyond you know having me dinner yeah. I mean I, I've, I have gone and I mean I've stayed under my mum's roof lots of times I guess that's another part of it my mum and my dad when my mum moved my dad had already gone to London so they weren't yeah. even in the same city so it would have felt unfair to go and stay with my mum for that whole time yeah. rather, than, rather than to try and see them both which is what I did I, I would yeah. see them both and then I'd have my own space but also the family environment 
was still was still hot often when people have gone to university they're going back and they're no longer teenagers so there's no heat but my sister's six years younger than me so there was still the heat going on yeah and i I didn't want to be in that i didn't want to have that drama anymore and it felt very like like i'd had 18 years of noise (laughs) and I, i i really appreciated the quiet even though i'm not a very quiet person which is probably because i've grown up through noise but uh but yeah and also it was interesting to realize that that i was a an individual that i was a, a yeah. an adult and that, that i could do things like live in a, a house on my own and and and, and that, that, that felt very liberating and yeah. freeing at that time one of the greatest pleasures i've had in my life is seeing my my eldest daughter do do that herself she's a, a german student um, doing a degree in German and philosophy as well because if she hears this she'd think I've forgotten but I haven't <laughs> um, as part of that you do your a year in Germany which okay. is where she is now and my heart has been blown away in, and, and my pride is huge seeing and she probably thinks it's patronising but it's not really seeing her do these, these things you've just described mm. under her own steam decide where she wants to live decide who she wants to hang out with if she wants to get on a train and go to Dusseldorf or to go to Remscheid to see her friends or to go to Belgium or to Amsterdam, she just does it. But it's a magical it's awesome time. To watch. Awesome. It's magical that time. Yeah. And it's kind of a, little, a few years later than the cost of it all kind of comes, it comes <laughs> up. You, you realise that much more. But, but when, when it first starts, when you first experience being an adult, mm. there is a freedom in being an adult that we forget the older yeah. we get because all of the things that aren't free about being an adult become more and more weighed on yeah. our shoulders and we're like we've got responsibilities we've got this but we have power we, we have yeah. agency and well, kids don't have that that's a fascinating thing because I never had that I had my first daughter at 20 um, yeah. I left home at 18 I didn't go to university because I, I managed to luck into a fabulous job that paid really well and, and like I said earlier on I thought I ought to do it I, I managed to blag my way into this thing and those things of being free on your own I didn't have I had a partner um, no you wouldn't have had I mean absolutely Absolutely. So that, that was it was still that all those choices where to live, how to live, it was just done with somebody else. And when it came years and years later to, to choosing to do those things on my own, I was already thirty. And that's something I, I you're not supposed to have regrets, but I regret not having had that experience. But at the same time, I'm so glad I had a, a kid so young because mm. I think that's helped me as a person. And it's it's brilliant seeing that, that narrowness of age between me and Rosie because I, I get to understand a bit more of her world and I think her youth and exuberance feeds into me as well. And I, I, I yeah, I, I'm very lucky to have had that. It's there really interesting though that, I mean, that you, I mean, I, I think there are real benefits sometimes to having kids when you're young, mm. but you're going to have had the full, the full whack, aren't you? Because I mean, yeah. you, you've got a young baby now, yeah. so you're going to have the experience which is going to be similar to my, my dad's experience. I mean, he was, well, he's 20 years older than you when he had me, yeah. actually. So that's quite a big, big, big difference. But he was 58 when he had me. Yeah. And that kept him, I think, young... Yeah, like into his old age. So you kind of yeah. done it right. You had the, you, you know, you've got you've got the the kid to keep you young. Now you don't yeah. have to worry so much. Cause there's, the, there's, a, there's a different pleasure in it as well. That that I was I was curious as to how different it would be, 11, 20, 21 years later. And the biggest difference is patience. Mm. You know, roughly, I know it's going to be all right. You know, because everything is in the end. Everything is. Uh, the, I suppose the one exception is is, 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 is health. But you know, money turns out all right. It just does. The, the house you live in, it turns out all right. Relationships, it turns out all right. Big things happen, big things change. But in the end, it's broadly okay. 
And so in a smaller way, if Arthur's crying, I'm not now thinking, Christ, what am I doing wrong? What am I not giving him? What, what have I... You know, he'll, eventually he'll not be crying. Mm. And as long as he's not in pain or hungry, and as long as you're there to smile at him and, and you know, and, uh, and hold his hand, it, it's okay. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a wonderful... I, I, I didn't know there would be benefits like that to having a kid older, but it's huge benefits. It's, it's very good. Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it must be very interesting to be able to compare yourself and yeah. the different children and the different ages. I mean, certainly I, I know people who've had, had children young that's been very beneficial mm. to them. My little sister had her child when she was 16. Yeah. And actually, I mean, and I won't talk very much about her because that's off limits, but... Mm. It was the best thing that ever happened to her, which is yeah. not what you're supposed to say to teenagers. Soft you know, this. but it was, and it sorted her out, and it, like you say, it gave her so much. Yeah. I'm not saying that it didn't mean that she missed out on things yeah. like 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 you did, but but yeah, it gave her so much. You often hear it, that sort of experience can be the making of someone and can quicken their character uh, in in beautiful ways. And I, I think it's you know the world is made up of different choices and different combinations of people and. Mm. Uh, Sometimes I think we we need to stop and learn from people who've made other choices. Like I've got friends who who think the idea of having children at all is horrible and will never have them. And rather <laughs> than kind of oh that starts right, actually understanding why and, and seeing what they like about that. Well, I don't want nice children. Mix. Do you not? No. And Do you know why? My girlfriend doesn't either. Yeah, I know why. For me, certainly, I want to break a circle of behaviour and yeah. it seems like the easiest way is to not have a child yeah. I don't know if I would be a good parent and I don't want to find out that I'm a bad one yeah. now maybe that's a lot of my friends think this is silly and I should have kids or whatever yeah. but I mean that's how I feel and uh, I, I I also I mean the other reason is I don't know what kind of a world the child would be in and I already feel yeah. so worried for my niece and my great nieces and all the children in my life because I work with children yeah. and, and, and then I, I feel so worried about the world and you know Arthur you know, when yeah. I see him I think you know lovely child and then I think oh <laughs> what, what kind of a world is he going to inherit and it makes me want it to it does make me want to change the world for the better and all that sort yeah. of thing but uh, I just I just I, if it was my own child I just don't know how I could I just I think it would just have such a strange effect on me. Yeah. I'm so, I, I'm so worried about things in general that if I had <laughs> somebody, maybe it would maybe it would make everything quiet. Maybe all the fear would go away. That's that's one of the things that people think, but I don't think that's a reason to have a child to make your fear yeah. go away. Oh, is it definitely. Well, it, it, it's not an experiment, is it? It's, um, <laughs> and, and I think when you have a position like that that comes from from thinking about it and, and analysing how you feel about it, there's there's a grace in that in the same way. And, yeah. and this is the point I was, I was trying to make, is that one of the great things about the human species is we're not programmed just to follow an instinctive line of, you know, gathering uh, berries and small animals and heating them up in a cave and, and procreating. We can do so many other things with our intelligence and with our... Yeah. I think that's a, a, a wonderful part of the vibrancy of, of, of our species. But in terms of worry, oh yeah, I... I some of the some of the potential routes that the world can take, the potential for a, for a global religious war is very very high. Yeah, the the potential for um, for for just hideous random horrible things to happen to people, like a horrible coach crash in in Switzerland just a couple of days ago that yeah. randomly takes a, 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 away a number of, of people's lives and destroys. All that is there, but in the end, it will turn out all right. In the end, it will. You know, for the majority. 
for the for the for the scope. If, if the planet tore itself apart, there'd be a shuttle with six people in it who would disappear off, and the story would start again. We're not going to annihilate ourselves. It's not going to happen. That's a. Uh, um, I hope you're right. I hope you're right. And the thing and, about and it is you don't have to be wrong. No, you know, I probably am wrong. But actually, it doesn't exactly. No, I mean that's what I mean. I mean that's why I'm not. I mean, there's no reason to challenge you on it. There's no. no neither of us can could, could say can say yeah. what will happen, and that's the exciting thing about about being alive, finding yeah. out what happens next. And what happens next in this conversation? Wow, that was quite professional. <laughs> um, is the last question, which is, do you have anything that you'd like to plug? Which is a strange question. No, not really. Apart from, I'd, I'd, I'd like to plug a universal thing that. Because it ties in with something that both of us have talked about in our lives. If you have something creative, you probably have to get it out. You probably have to take advantage of the extraordinary opportunity to put things in front of people. Just do it. You know, and, and that, that would be my plug. Would be that I want to hear what other people have got that they think is cool and they want to put expose me to, and I want them to see the play that I eventually produce and the performance I eventually give. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, that was brilliant, and, and uh, we're we're bang on an hour, which is <laughs> which is good because we're a bit time constrained today, aren't we? The last question that I ask people, or the last thing I ask people to do, is just to say goodbye to the audience. Goodbye, audience. Thanks for listening. Appreciate it. Thanks very much. Goodbye. You can find Getting Better Acquainted on Twitter at UBA Podcast. You can find it on Facebook. It's Getting Better Acquainted. Have a search on Facebook and like it. Or you can find it on the website www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk You can also subscribe by searching on iTunes and subscribing to us that way. And on the Stitcher Smart Radio app, you can download for your smartphone from stitcher.com or through the App Store. There are lots of ways to get better acquainted.